1: It's known as the breadbasket of the world. Russia and Ukraine are respectively the largest and fifth largest exporters of wheat. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine is leading to one of the worst disruptions to wheat supply since the First World War. This is Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Henry Trix, otherwise known as Schumpeter for my weekly column. And in today's show, we'll find out how the war in Ukraine will affect the security and stability of the world's food supply. Who will be the hardest hit by a shock to the supply of wheat, corn and fertiliser?
2: In addition to countries in the Middle East and North Africa, countries that are heavily dependent on imports from Russia and Ukraine include countries in West Africa, uh, like Nigeria, the DRC, as well as countries in Southeast Asia.
1: Can farmers around the world adjust their output to make up the shortfall?
3: Most producers are probably not necessarily going to dramatically change crop rotations just because generally prices are good across the
1: board. And we'll ask how spiking food prices feed through into soaring inflation and how central bankers should react. Just as in 1914, the current war in Ukraine threatens to upend the world's food markets. Russia's assault on Ukraine, now in its third week, has caused more than 2.8 million people to flee their homes, to escape bombardment by President Putin's forces. Beyond that devastating emergency, another crisis is unfolding, potentially affecting hundreds of millions more. It's the damage to the global food supply. Russia and Ukraine export big volumes of the world's wheat and other grains, and they are important suppliers of critical fertiliser components, a lack of which would hit yields around the world. Crops already grown in Ukraine are not getting through. Bombing has closed Ukrainian ports, while ships trying to pick up grain from Russia have been hit by missiles in the Black Sea. And future harvests are an even bigger worry. Uncertainty is sky high and prices are soaring. The Economist's finance correspondent, Mathieu Favas, and Charlotte Howard, our New York bureau chief and co-host of our Checks and Balance podcast, have been writing about this. Hi to you both. Hi, Henry. Hi, Henry. Matthieu, let's start by getting a sense of the scale of the supply shock here to wheat. What's coming, and,
4: and what's that doing to prices? It is a, a massive shock. Today, Russia and Ukraine together account for 29 percent of international exports, international annual sales. And what's making things worse is that we've had a series of poor harvests in recent years. We've had a fronting buying during the pandemic. We've had supply chain issues since. So the stocks are pretty low. They're actually 31% below the five-year average. And the threat of embargoes you know, on Russian supply and the threat to future harvest in Ukraine, uh, that's put a lot of uh, pressure under prices, which were already really high uh, last year, pretty close to, uh, to decade peaks Uh, They've risen by nearly a third since the invasion of Ukraine started. One problem also is is volatility, so uncertainty about prices, which are uh, varying by by quite big amounts on a daily basis. Uh, There's a good indicator uh, compiled by a think tank in Washington, D.C. called the IFPRI, and it's flashing bright red. It's been flashing bright red for a number of days now.
1: So that's wheat, which sounds pretty terrible. But I guess this supply shock goes beyond wheat just because of the um, number of grains and other foodstuffs that are produced in Russia and Ukraine. Charlotte, can you give us a sense of what effect this is going to have on other parts of the global food supply?
5: It's very sweeping because of the scale, as you say, of the production that's taking place in these countries. Together, Russia and Ukraine export about 12% of all calories that are traded. And they're huge exporters among the top five exporters of cereals, which include barley and corn, uh, oil seeds like sunflowers. And these are really important both for animal feed and meat that consumers around the world buy, as well as other food supplies like vegetable oils. So you're going to see pretty broad ripple effects across the whole food supply chain. One other thing that's important to keep in mind is it's not just food products that are affected, it's also agricultural inputs. So Russia is a huge supplier of some of the key ingredients that are used to make fertilizers. And that's very important to keep in mind because it's not just that the price of grains will rise, it's that the price of farmers' inputs will rise. And so that will continue to push prices upward.
1: So what's really worrying here is the kind of cascading effect of this Obviously, those suffering most right now are Ukrainians themselves. There was a a letter sent to The Economist this weekend by a Ukrainian farmer who was referring to the Stalin-imposed famine, or what he called the holodomor of the 1930s in Ukraine, which he translated as as death by hunger. Um, And I think that is a real worry right now in Ukraine. But beyond Ukraine, Mattia, who's likely to be most affected by what is happening to food supply and the spiraling prices?
4: Yeah, the, the, the ripple effects are, are likely to be extensive, very wide. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, produces a food price index, which is widely followed. And before the war, it had already reached an all-time high on the, the back of what I described before. So the number of people deemed food insecure, hungry on, on a routine basis, had already reached the number of 800 million people, which of course is, is enormous. That was the highest in a decade. What we are seeing now in uh, one of the world's biggest baskets is likely to push that number uh, much higher. And so I spoke to Caitlin Welsh, uh, the director of the Global Food Security Programme at CSIS, the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. She told me who's going to be hit the hardest by all this.
2: When we look at wheat, for example, it's countries across North Africa and in the Middle East that are most exposed because they rely directly on imports of wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Egypt, for example, imports 85% of its wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Prior to this war, the US Department of Agriculture had estimated that Iran, Iraq, and Syria would need to double their imports due to a drought that's expected in that region. So those countries I can also expect to be affected. Um, In addition to countries in the Middle East and North Africa, countries that are heavily dependent on imports from Russia and Ukraine include countries in West Africa, uh, like Nigeria, the DRC, as well as countries in Southeast Asia. But there are second-order effects that will be felt around the world. One example is Brazil. Brazil is the world's top producer of coffee, sugar, and soybeans. And it's also the most reliant on imported fertilizer for production of those commodities. So, as the price of fertilizer increases, because Russia and Belarus are, are the top producers and because the price of energy has increased, as the cost of that input increases, so will the cost of these commodities of coffee, sugar, and soybeans. Every food that has these as ingredients will ultimately, the price will also increase.
4: How is the war going to affect the volume of output?
2: We will see estimates in the coming months of the extent to which this year's harvest is threatened. I've seen estimates of about one-third of the harvest being lost because of the war. I think that those are very rough estimates, and I think we're going to get a much clearer picture. Um, Seventy percent of Ukraine's land is dedicated to agriculture, most of that to wheat. That means that uh, so much land is potentially destroyed. The most open question, I think, is the extent to which next year's harvest can be planted. Should it be planted? Should Ukrainian farmers be able to to cultivate that crop, apply fertilizers, irrigate, etc.? To me, it's an extremely open question, and it will only be answered by the length of this war.
1: Charlotte, could you give us the view from the US? I mean, America has its own massive agricultural industry. How are farmers and grain traders in the US seeing the situation in Ukraine and Russia?
5: It's funny, I used to be based in the Midwest and spent a lot of time talking to farmers there. And they view their role and they take their role as exporters very seriously. They help to feed the world. And they have been talking about wanting to increase exports. Uh, Some Republicans want to have more land that's designated for conservation switched and used for farming. The issue right now is that there isn't that much spare capacity in the US. Crop acreage was already expected to be near a record high. And so that means that you probably are going to get more price increases. There isn't that much land that you can turn over to make additional acreage for for corn, for wheat. Um, Wheat is America's third biggest crop behind corn and soybeans. And if you want to boost yields, you need more fertilizer and those input costs are going up. So America does have corn stocks, for instance, those can be drawn down and exported, but there's a limit to how much American farmers can do just because they already were operating almost near capacity.
1: And is there any sense right now that food prices are going up or is most of the attention focused on petrol prices and oil prices? Is the cost of food, I guess, a concern in America at the moment?
5: It's really all of the above. So you're absolutely right that there is something that's just a shock to a normal American consumer when they're driving along, which they do a lot of driving along and they see uh, the sign at the local gas station, the local petrol station with very high prices. It's hard to ignore that. But the grocery bills are very high too. The food prices are going up. In 2021, you saw this particularly for beef and veal, but it's across the board. In January, I was looking at the recent data both for food prices at home and for eating away from home, they were 7% higher in January of 2022 than they had been in January of 2021. And that's significant. It's a problem for Joe Biden politically and for Democrats as they head into the midterm. You heard the president talking about trying to get inflation under control and that being his top priority. But it absolutely is, is a problem in America. It's not of the scale that you will see in poorer countries. So when you're thinking about a food crisis, it's an issue in America, but it's not of the severity and breadth that you'd see in some of the countries that Mathieu is talking about.
1: Mattia, you mentioned how the effect of this disruption will ripple around the world. How exactly does that happen?
4: Yeah, I I see the fallout from the war probably will be felt in three ways. There's the disruption to current grain shipments, uh, which are due to happen now or imminently. There's low or inaccessible future harvest in Ukraine and and Russia. So that's grains still, you know, yet to be produced. And then you have uh, lower production in other parts of the world, notably because of the fertilizer problem that... uh, Charlotte hinted out a bit earlier. So if you start with shipments, in normal times, you know, wheat and barley crops are harvested in, in the summer and they're exported in the autumn. Uh, and by February, by March, so, so now, most of the ships bearing grains, uh, they're gone. But these are not quite normal times because global stocks are low and you've got big importers in the Middle East, in North Africa especially, Uh, in a few other regions as well, they're quite anxious to secure more supplies uh, and they're struggling to get them uh, because Ukrainian ports, especially, you know, those in Western Ukraine or they're bracing for Russian assaults and and they're shot. Uh, Some of them have been bombed, so they're damaged. And getting the grain to travel through the north of the country, through Poland, is very impractical. It's a massive diversion, So that's not possible. And then you've got vessels that are trying to pick up grain from Russia. Uh, They've been hit by missiles, you know, they've they've been damaged also by basically stray uh, rockets from the war uh, and most, for understandable reasons, cannot get insurance. So accessing the, the grain from these two countries is very hard.
1: So is there a sort of scramble taking place by some of these food importers to get hold of those grains?
4: Yes, you're already seeing that happen. The importers are trying to secure more supplies And exporters are starting to limit uh, the sales of grain as well, which is a a very worrying spiral, which we probably will get into a bit bit later. The second big worry is future crops. And that's probably an even bigger worry. So in Ukraine, you've got a few crops that have already been planted, wheat in particular, the next harvest of wheat, the next harvest of, of barley. They're already in the ground. And you've got, uh, first of all, lack of manpower because a lot of the stuff has been shipped off to war. You've got a lack of access to chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides. Uh, And so it's quite likely that this harvest, which is already planted, will be uh, uh, yielding lower production. Some of the planting that's due to happen for other crops may not happen at all for the same reason. And then in Russia, the problem is different. You know, it's not that uh, the war is, is really preventing production there. Uh, it's more that exports are being blockaded. They're not subject to sanction yet, but what you're seeing is, is a lot of banks are very reluctant to to lend to traders who would normally go to Russia to access the grain and ship it on boats. The boats cannot get insurance. If you had to sum it up, you could say that Ukraine's production is unreachable and, and Russia's production is untouchable at the moment. And uh, the, the net effect is you don't get uh, very much of it.
1: So when we talked last week on Money Talks about some of the problems in the oil market, the solution to a shortage of Russian oil was to look for other sources of supply. Is that something that one can do in the market for grains? I mean, you'd have thought the farmers elsewhere would be looking to address some of the shortfall. So how does this supply chain for crops work?
4: So ramping up production is not that straightforward. Uh, first of all, to your point about the oil and gas market, I think New Russia, you know, is like five six percent of the oil production worldwide. Here we're talking about you know twenty nine percent disappearing pretty much overnight. So it's not the same order of magnitude, and it's already very difficult for for the energy markets. You can imagine how hard it is for for food. I talked about this to Alain Goubeau, who is based in Ontario in Canada. His family runs a mixed dairy and cash crop farm uh, growing corn, soybeans, and wheat. And he also runs a software company called Combine Ag, uh, which aims to help farmers manage record keeping and and crop marketing. I asked Alain whether farmers like him can ramp up production of a certain crop, say wheat, uh, in our case. And he told me they can to a certain extent, but that increasing production obviously takes a long time and you might not want to do it at the expense of growing something else.
3: I think one of the challenges is it depends a bit on the crops and a decent amount of the volume is related to winter wheat. Winter wheat is a wheat that's planted in the fall, germinates, but then lies dormant throughout the winter and then uh, really starts growing uh, this period or depending roughly where you are in, in North America, how south versus north. So those acres are more or less locked in, so to speak. Then the question becomes... There are types of wheat that can be grown in spring, um, and so certainly one might reallocate acres to those. Now, the reality is all crops are at a high price right now, largely because the oilseed complex of which Ukraine contributes to via sunflowers, uh, links into soybeans and canola. Uh, Canola here in Canada, or rapeseed, as it's more commonly known in Europe, was in very short supply last year because of drought conditions. So, supplies are tight across the board. And so, those crops were also interesting to grow. And then, corn is the other, uh, in a typical corn soybean rotation crop, where I think a lot of the concern there was running into late last year, fertilizer prices were quite high. And so, there was a lot of concern about whether it would be profitable to grow those crops uh, but with the recent increase in prices gross margins on a per acre basis are looking quite good so I think most producers are probably not necessarily going to dramatically change crop rotations just because generally prices are good across the board agronomically it looks interesting uh, to maintain you know a typical crop rotation and so I think what you're more likely to see is some changes in the swings of where crops are moving in and out um, in order to meet some of the supply gaps. But I don't expect to see a dramatic change in the amount of acres produced um, simply because a lot of this is already more or less locked in at this point.
1: And Alan mentioned fertilizer there. That's a big concern for future planting then.
4: Yeah, so the region broadly understood, so Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus, especially Russia and Belarus, they are massive suppliers of critical fertilizer components. You've got several types of fertilizers, uh, two, three types, but you you could probably group them in two categories. One of them relies more on natural gas as a key component, and the other one on potash. Well, of course, Russia is a big supplier of natural gas, we know that, but also it's a massive supply of potash, 21% of uh, the global production. Belarus also produces 18% uh, of the world's potash and is subject to sanctions because it's uh, it's considered to be a, a Russian proxy and also it's cracked down on protests violently in the last uh, few years. The effect of this, by the way, of the sanctions on Belarus earlier, uh, just that, before the war in Ukraine, right, uh, had pushed uh, the prices of fertilizers to, to near record high, you know, they doubled or tripled depending on the type. That plus supply chain issues and rebounding production after COVID. So already before the war, federal prices were really high. And the worry now is that not only are prices going to go even further through the roof, but you might not have enough of it at all, actually. And since four-fifths of the world's potash is traded internationally, what that means is that a lot of countries depend on it. A lot of potash crosses borders. If you don't get it, then yields are going to come down worldwide pretty much at the same time.
1: Yes. I, um, curiously, I received a text from a friend of mine who is a farmer saying that she was being quoted at a price of £1,400 pounds, uh, for a ton of fertilizer versus £200 pounds 18 months previously. So quite a shock to the farming industry everywhere.
4: Absolutely. It's, it, it, it is mad. You know, I was listening to the French radio uh, a couple of days ago and you had dairy farmers there complaining about the same issue, when in fact, you know, it's quite far from the wheat and and corn issue we were discussing before. But the nature of fertilizers is that they they needed to grow all kinds of crops, including the ones you feed to animals and and others. So yeah, blanket effect.
5: And don't forget that oil is also a really important input for farmers as well. If you think about the size of those combines, it requires a lot of a lot of uh, fuel to drive them. So that is yet another force that will have the effect of pushing up input costs for farmers that will then push up grain prices for the rest of us.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. In a moment, we'll look at how this crisis feeds into rising inflation and protectionism. But first, the usual reminder. With a subscription to The Economist, you can read or listen to all of our coverage of the war in Ukraine. There's a fascinating piece on how America is turning to containment to deal with Russia and China. And there's a beautiful backstory column on why we shouldn't cancel Russian art. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode.
0: That's BlueNile.com.
1: So let's consider the wider economic picture then. Before Russia invaded Ukraine, already advanced economies were grappling with rising inflation. So, how does this crisis compound that, Mathieu?
4: Well, the, the really worrying thing here is that what you're likely to see is a much greater share of income spent on, on food. And, you know, typically as countries and populations get richer, this share is supposed to diminish so they can spend on other things, you know, housing, uh, health care. And here you're going to see this share rise. Um, you know, numbers I've seen, so it could be like 5, 10, 15, 20 percent, depending on the region. So it's, it's it's really significant. And this will be felt most acutely in the Middle East, Africa, and parts of Asia where a lot of the Russian and Ukraine supply cannot be done without. That's around 800 million people, depending heavily on Black Sea wheat. And it's not just the raw produce, uh, because that includes Turkey, for example, which supplies much of the Southern Mediterranean with, with flour. It processes the, the, the wheat in, into flour. Egypt, a very populous country, uh, usually buys 70% of its wheat from uh, Russia and Ukraine. Lebanon, uh, a country that is already gra- grappling with you know, a lot of other issues gets half of its wheat from Ukraine alone. And many others cannot do without, you know, uh, corn, soya bean, vegetable oil from, from Ukraine.
1: Can I just ask you there, um, India and China, are two of the most populous nations, now big rice-consuming nations, so obviously that's not affected by what happens in Russia or Ukraine. But is there a spillover effect on those countries too from the, uh, from, from
4: the grains uh, shortage? And not such a, a, a big spillover effect on on rice uh, because the, the substitution with wheat is is relatively, you know one one fix to try and, and solve the current crisis might be to uh, to use another crop to feed animals, um, and I, I don't think the rice is very prominent there. Corn is, uh, so corn is you know is is already because we're losing supply from Ukraine. But if it's a user size substitution for the lack of wheat. Um, we're we actually already seeing that to an extent, in addition to the effect of the loss of supply from Ukraine.
5: It's really about feed prices, right, Mathieu, that it's about the higher the impact of higher grain prices that are used for animal feed may make, as you say, the, the consumption patterns that we've seen in recent years with rising meat consumption in middle-income countries that will make it more expensive.
4: That's very true. Yeah, No. exactly. You're really right.
1: So you know, as countries start to worry about the, the security of supply of food for their populations, are we beginning to see uh, a rise in protectionism,
4: Mathieu? Uh, unfortunately, we are. So, so last year, I wrote about similar issues uh, because food prices were already really high. The FAO, so the UN agency, was, was already warning of, of potential um, you know, food crisis in, in parts of the world. Um, but we were not seeing, you know, similar similarly after COVID when supply chains were disrupted, we did not see any rise in protectionism, uh, nothing really alarming. Uh, but this time around, um, so Russia and Ukraine already have banned uh, grain exports, um, suspended, they say, but it's for a number of months, so that's likely to last. Um, last year already, you had restrictions on fertilizer exports, um, not on food yet. Um, and then since Russia and Ukraine, actually some before, some after, uh, you've seen a number of countries, Argentina, Hungary, Indonesia, Turkey, they've all announced food export restrictions. Um, and it's likely, you know, this, this sort of things tend to snowball. So when you see your neighbor restricting exports, you you know, you tend to think you should do the same. Um, and this is the sort of dynamics that provoked, uh, uh, you know, massive food crisis in 2007 or 08, which led to a number of food riots in in many countries in the world.
1: That was the, uh, in the run-up to the Arab Spring.
4: That's correct, yes. I mean, this, these riots were a bit earlier, so a few years earlier, but they basically planted the seeds um, for the troubles that we saw then in uh, 2010, 2011. I asked Michael Magdovitz from the uh, lender Rabobank about this shift in supply and demand in the global market for wheat, corn, and other agricultural products.
6: We're seeing an extreme imbalance even prior to the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia. We were already looking at scarce uh, or very low supplies across grains and oilseeds, including wheat, um, but also vegetable oils. We saw a very strong demand already, uh, whittling down supplies, and now the supply side has seen this conflict exacerbate the dynamic. So uh, very, very, very scarce supplies at the moment.
4: Is there any historical precedent for the wheat supply shock we're seeing at the moment due to the war in Ukraine?
6: Yes. The last time we saw record prices on wheat was also when uh, Russia had something to do with it. They basically prevented exports from taking place in 2007, 2008, causing wheat prices to skyrocket. And we're seeing a similar dynamic take place today. Russia is involved once again. Um, There are concerns about the economic war that others are declaring on Russia, but also its own protectionist policies and and ways of doing business that create um, large-scale instability across the most vulnerable populations of the world who rely on Russian wheat for their bread.
4: How long could the disruption last? Do we expect to see elevated prices for agricultural commodities for the foreseeable future?
6: The longer this conflict continues, the more instability and price risk you're going to see. And that's for a very simple reason. We come into this conflict at the tail end of the harvest season and of the export season. So there's not that much product currently in Russia or in the Ukraine, albeit with some exceptions, like corn or sun oil. And we are heading into that critical planting season, the spring planting season, with concerns that there's actually, as this conflict continues, going to be an inability for the Ukraine, the largest country in Europe, to be able to plant its crops. And if this continues and we see that move into Russia where, you know, farmers may face liquidity issues, they may not be seeing, um, you know, a huge export market. And that could cause further supply-side instability and price rises.
1: Charlotte, whenever there's turmoil in a market, uh, there are losers, obviously, but um, there are winners too. So how do you see the balance of power in this situation?
5: the agricultural traders adm bungie they have seen their share prices surge since the invasion handling margins seem to be good and these are companies that specialize in rerouting the supply of grain so i think they're they're quite busy at the moment even though they face significant trouble with their Ukrainian and Russian operations. Uh, Investors seem to think that they'll be beneficiaries of this crisis. For farmers themselves, it's more mixed, of course, as we've discussed, because their input costs are going up. But I have a wonder about whether some of the countries that have been more skeptical of genetically modified crops might loosen their restrictions, might look more favorably on them just out of desperation.
4: What, What do you reckon, Mathieu? I think it is possible um, in some countries. I think some will remain uh, quite opposed to it, but on principle, I mean, the EU, for example, there's, there's almost an ideology to be opposed to some of these innovations. Uh, and, the, and I don't think these are the countries that are most exposed to what we're discussing. Um, but I agree with Charlotte. Yes, this, there's going to be some pressure to uh, to probably release um, relieve some of the restrictions around that.
1: Charlotte, we turn to the even bigger picture here, I guess, which is, you know, what this means from a a global macroeconomic standpoint. Uh, So what, if any, prescriptions are there for central bankers who were already worried about inflation uh, before this latest shock?
5: It's such an interesting question, Henry, because We were talking for months about inflation and the Federal Reserve's plans to raise rates and how many times they would raise rates and how much they would raise rates. And then this enormous crisis seizes the world. And The Economist has argued that central bankers should really stick to their plan to raise rates and that the evidence, both from the pandemic and from the 1970s, is that if you keep monetary policy too loose, you can have overheating. So that doesn't mean that governments should do nothing. There's a particular role to think about how governments might help poor countries where the food crisis will be most acute. But for central bankers there is an imperative and historical evidence would suggest that there is an imperative to to stick to their plan, to hew to their plan as closely as possible, and try to ignore some of the enormous amounts of volatility that you're seeing in energy markets and in food markets. One thing to keep in mind, though, that I've seen just playing out across the market is that day to day, people are taking different bets on how long this disruption will last. And there is not real agreement in the market, and that's feeding this extraordinary volatility that you see, that there'll be some sense that perhaps energy supplies will return to normal, that that a grain disruption will be short-lived. I'm inclined, for all the reasons that Mathieu has so extraordinarily laid out, I'm inclined to think that this is going to be more lasting, that what looks like a short-term disruption because of the knock-on effects uh, for the spring harvest, and frankly, because I don't see sanctions on Russia being lifted anytime soon, even if there were a cessation of fighting, it's hard to imagine that the sanctions would instantly vanish. So I'm inclined to think that this will be a more lasting problem that will cause prices to be elevated for quite some time.
1: Yes, that sounds like a frightening inevitability. And Mathieu, throughout history, I guess food crises have to one degree or another fed into political and social unrest do you see risks of that increasing at the moment?
4: Yes, I mean you're right, you know, through history you know, starting with my own country in France <laughs> the French Revolution started you know, partly because of a shortage of bread and, and other um, staples. It is quite possible, you know, if prices skyrocket uh, continue to rise if there's not enough food in the Middle East and North Africa things will get volatile not just on financial markets or the grain markets but politically as well and you could see history being made uh, as some governments struggle to, to 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 contain that or to to manage people's situation uh, it's there will be pressure for change and uh, when food is is lacking this pressure tends to be pretty violent
1: well that was a somewhat somber note on which to end but it really has been a fascinating discussion And I'd like to thank Mathieu here in the studio and Charlotte in New York for some really insightful comments. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Henry. Our thanks, too, to Caitlin Welsh, Alain Goubeau and Michael Magdevitz. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or write to us at podcasts at economist.com. The producers are Jat Gill and Amika Shortina-Nolan, and Nico Raufast is our sound engineer. The editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Henry Trix, and in London, this is The Economist.